Thank you, Nicholas. Just by chance, my grandfather, the English part of my ancestors, was named Nicholas Brown. Um, So I feel like I'm sort of back home here with... uh, uh, When you were referring to the book, I remember the late Senator Paul Simon of Illinois introducing me many years ago, and he held the book up. He said, Lester's written the sort of book that once you put it down, you can't pick it up again. (laughs) (laughs) About a year ago, a woman named Liz Carpenter died. She was, I don't know, 86, I think. She had been um, uh, in the Lyndon Johnson White House. She was from Texas, a very colorful, bright woman, and she had been, among other things, press secretary for LBJ. Um, And after she retired, she wrote a book entitled Ruffles and Flourishes. And she was on book tour, going from city to city. And one night in Atlanta, Georgia, just by chance, she ran into her former White House colleague, Arthur Schlesinger, in the hotel lobby. And Arthur said, gee, Liz, that was a great book of yours. I really enjoyed it. Who wrote it for you? She said, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Arthur. Who read it to you? (laughs) When uh, I was asked to uh, use John Beddington's lecture of, I guess, a year and a half or so ago now as a point of departure, um, it really didn't take a lot of effort because I had been uh, this was several months ago, had been reading his, uh, his talk to, I believe it was the uh, UK Commission on Sustainability, um, and, uh, and, and thinking about his idea. He said he didn't want to just project things in the indefinite future, but he wanted to give a, uh, provide sort of a time framework. And in his opinion, these convergent trends, converging trends that, that Nick referred to would be coming together to create a, um, a so-called perfect storm without actually defining in much detail exactly what that was. He said, 2030. A week later, Jonathan Parrott, in an article in The Guardian, commented on Beddington's speech. He said, I totally agree with the analysis. The only, the only point in which I would differ, he said, is the timing. It seems to me, he said, that it's more likely to be in 2020 than 2030. He said, I think it's much closer. And, and I thought about that, and I asked myself, you know, how much time do we have? Um, and one of the purposes of doing World on the Edge was to try to give some sense, not, you know, that the world's going to end in 2012 or something, but a sense of of how close we're getting to the edge and and what some of the consequences um, might be. We could be very close to the edge. The problem is we don't know. Um, My sense is that food is probably the weak link in the system. And we know, in looking at earlier civilizations that declined and collapsed, that more often than not, it was the food supply giving away. 
because of salting of the soils in, in, in Sumer or uh, deforestation and soil erosion in, in the Mayan civilization. But for, for a long time, I, I didn't think food could be the weak link for our modern civilization. But in recent years, I've, I've, I've shifted my thinking. I now not only think it could be the weak link, I think it is the weak link. And I remember at the time of the, the Russian heat wave, which was a, an extraordinary climate event. I mean, if someone had told me last spring that the average temperature in Moscow in the month of July was going to be 14 degrees Fahrenheit above the norm, I would have said, you know, I'm not a climate denier, but that's, that's off the chart. But it happened. And we saw uh, a country dry out in the intense heat and the, and the associated drought. We saw a country literally burning and, and the inability to control the fires by early August. There were 300, 400 new fires starting every day. And I, the, the, the one economic estimate I've seen of the total losses from the, from the, the, the heat and the, and the fire and, and so forth is $300 billion, which is a lot. I mean, there's a lot of burning in, in Western Russia. But then as I thought about it more, and, and incidentally, one of the consequences of that, that, that that we've paid attention to is the reduction in the, in the grain harvest. The Russians were hoping for something close to 100 million tons in their grain harvest this past year, and it turned out that they harvested 60 million tons. They lost 40% of their grain crop. I asked myself, what if that heat wave that was centered in Moscow had been centered in Chicago? What if the United States had lost 40% of its grain harvest, which is exactly what would have happened if the temperature in Chicago had been 14 degrees Fahrenheit above the norm in July, a period when the US corn crop is, is pollinating? If that heat wave had been centered in Chicago, the US would have lost 160 million tons of its 400 million ton grain harvest instead of 40 million tons, as in the case of Russia. 160 million ton loss in the US grain harvest and in the world grain harvest would have dropped stocks to a level we've never seen before. And there would have been chaos in world grain markets. Grain prices would have gone to levels we, we, we could not have imagined. Food prices would start rising throughout the world. The grain exporting countries would begin restricting exports in order to keep their food prices under control, which would substantially reduce the exportable supply of grain for the world. The oil exporting countries would begin to barter oil for grain to make sure they got the grain they needed and wanted. And there'd be scores of other countries, many of them lower income grain importing countries that have been scrambling for the crumbs that were left. There would have been a total loss of faith in the market 
And the idea of a, of, a, of a barter economy emerging is, again, sort of beyond our imagination. But we could have seen the international economic system begin to break down. It's based on confidence. And that, co that confidence could have, uh, could have been lost. So this is how far are we from a harvest like this? No one knows. We do know right now that grain prices, soybean prices, are very close to the record highs in 07, 08. Corn is trading at over $6 a bushel, wheat over $8 a bushel, soybeans over $14 a bushel. The FAO Food Price Index, which is based, I think, on some 50 developing countries, is actually higher now than it was at the peak in 07, 08. It was higher in December. It's probably going to be, go still, still higher. And what we do not now know is whether we will have a, a bumper grain harvest this year, worldwide, or a poor one. What we do know is that the winter wheat crop, which is the big in the northern hemisphere, which is most of the world's wheat production, is not in particularly good shape. In the US and China, two of the major wheat producers, uh, Drought is a problem in the wheat-growing regions in both countries. In Russia, part of the winter wheat did not get planted because it was too dry. The wheat simply couldn't germinate. And so if that winter wheat is all replaced with spring wheat, there will be a loss in yield of about a third in, in yield per acre. So three of the world's leading four wheat producers, the other, the fourth being India, three of the four, already have crops that are not going to be bumper crops for sure. They may turn out to be good crops, but they won't be exceptional. And, and, and it's possible that they, 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 they won't even be good. So with wheat, there's not much prospect for advancing. And I would point out that last year we fell short by more than 50 million tons. That is, uh, production fell short of consumption by 50 50 plus million tons. In addition to making up that gap, we're also faced with the need for another 40 million tons to cover the growth in demand this year. So in excess of 90 million tons. So just to stay where we are, we need to increase this year's grain harvest by roughly 100 million tons over last year's. If we want to rebuild stocks and get prices back down, then it's going to take something like 140 or 50 million tons. We don't know now whether we're, we're going to see that or not. And there, there's sort of two clouds hanging over the world grain market. One is the realization on the part of grain traders and, and grain importing countries that the extreme climate events that scientists have been talking about for decades that come with rising temperature are, we're beginning to understand what that means. We saw it in, in, in Russia. We saw it in, in Pakistan with the, the record flooding. We had two record events overlapping in, in time this, this past summer. So 
I also recalled that in 1988 in the United States, we had extreme heat and drought in the Midwest. It was a year when in places you could walk across the Mississippi River, you could wade across it. It was that, um, it got that dry. That year, the only time in our history, we did not produce enough grain to satisfy our own needs. But it wasn't a big problem because we had used stocks at the time. So we, we drew down those stocks, maintained our exports, didn't really have a major effect on the world market. We don't have that excess anymore. And during the last half of the last century, we had idled cropland in the United States. Whenever there was a monsoon failure in India or a drought in, in the former Soviet Union or a heat wave in the US, in the Department of Agriculture, we'd calculate how much land we needed to bring back into production to stabilize the situation. And then within a year, things would be back to normal. But one of the difficulties now is that, one, we no longer have the idle cropland in the United States. We're flat out in production terms. And there's no norm to go back to. The world's climate is now in a state of, of, of flux of change. And we just don't know what things are going to be like this year or next year or further down the road. One of the things I've noticed and begun to think about uh, more seriously is that the world divides into basically two groups in looking at the future. One, a group that's well represented here tonight, natural scientists. We look at the future through a climate lens or a hydrological lens or in terms of soils, soil erosion and so forth, deforestation, overfishing, and we see trends that cannot be sustained. We know that. We know it professionally. You cannot keep, continue overpumping aquifers indefinitely. And so we're concerned about the future, and we, we know we need to change, make some major changes, major course corrections. So that's one view of the world. The other view of the world is that held by most economists. If you look at the economic projections of the World Bank, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, pick a major financial institution and look at their projections. They are all more or less an extrapolation of the last few decades into the future. They average an economic growth rate of about 3% per year, which means the 2010 economy will double in 24 years by 2034. The economists don't ask the question, will there be enough water to support a doubling of the world economy? What does that translate into in terms of additional demand for food and how will we satisfy those needs? How will a doubling of the world economy affect the Earth's climate if we continue more or less with business as usual, which is what the economists assume? So we have these two very different views of, of of the future, and we've, we've got to bring them together. And it's not 
getting rid of economists to do it. It's incorporating what we know in the sciences into economic policy making. Among other things, it means restructuring the tax system get, to get the market to tell the truth. And I'll come back to that a bit later. How much time do we have? We don't know. Can we save the Greenland ice sheet? We don't know, because we don't know where the tipping point is. And I'll come back to that, too. Historically, indeed, probably since 1970, as I can recall at least, the rule of thumb in, in terms of world food security is that you need to have at least 70 days of carryover stocks at the end of the year. That is, when the new crop begins, you need 70 days of carryover stocks as a cushion in case there's a poor harvest ahead. And that's been, that, that number was developed by FAO, and it's been widely used. But if it was 70 days in 1970, what should it be today with much greater climate volatility, for example? We haven't, we haven't even begun the public dialogue to, to rethink that basic point. Agriculture as it exists today evolved over an 11,000 period of rather remarkable climate stability. And now suddenly that climate system is changing. And as a result, agriculture will be more and more out of sync with climate change because we can't anticipate um, and, 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 and restructure agriculture uh, based on the changes that, that are coming. The other thing that's new now is that I mentioned these grain price surges in the last half of the last century, monsoon failure in India, drought in, in the Soviet Union, or what have you. And we responded. Um, those were event-driven price surges. What we have now is a trend-driven rise in prices, where an event can exacerbate the trend. But trends on both the demand and the supply side of the food equation are altering the food outlook. On the demand side, historically, population growth was the source of additional demand. And it is still an important source of demand. Tonight at the dinner table, there will be 219,000 people who were not there last night and again tomorrow night. And that begins to, at some point, tax the skills of farmers and, and puts excessive pressure on the Earth's resources. The second source of growing demand is rising affluence. And this is a trend that, um, a source of demand that really began developing after World War II. As Europe recovered, as J Japan recovered, we wanted to expand the production of, of beef and dairy products and so forth, and we didn't have new grasslands that we could, could, could use, so we had to start feeding grain. And that was the beginning of feedlot uh, agriculture in the U.S. and the heavy use of grain for, uh, for dairy production. Today, there may be three billion people trying to move up the food chains, consuming more grain-intensive livestock products. 
The third source of additional demand is the growing conversion of grain into oil. And this is concentrated in the United States. We have, we harvested last year over 400 million tons of grain in the US. Of that, 119 million tons went to ethanol distilleries. And what this does, apart from diverting grain from food and feed to producing fuel, is it ties the price of grain to the price of oil. Because as the price of oil goes up, it becomes more profitable to convert grain into oil, i.e. ethanol. So if the price of oil goes to $150 a barrel, the price of grain will follow it up. If it goes to $200 a barrel, the price of grain will follow it up because it will become more and more profitable to convert grain into, into fuel. And it's not a solution. The grain required to fill an SUV tank, 25 gallons, with ethanol will feed one person for a year at average world consumption levels. Converting grain into fuel is not a solution to oil insecurity. From 1990 to 2005, the annual growth in world grain consumption is about 21 million tons a year. From 2005 to 2010, that 21 million became 41 million additional tons of grain consumed per year, largely because of the extraordinary growth in investment in ethanol distilleries in the US. On the supply side, we've talked about climate change. The, the other major factor affecting the food, food prospect in the short term is water shortages. Half of us live in countries now where water tables are falling as a result of overpumping for irrigation. Saudi Arabia, which for more than 20 years was self-sufficient in wheat production, announced two, three years ago now that, that, that their wheat self-sufficiency days were over. They had been pumping a fossil aquifer fairly deep, maybe close to a half mile down, but it is now largely depleted. And they said they're going to phase out production in eight years, but it looks like it's going to uh, happen in five years. Probably next year uh, will be the last year that the Saudis will produce wheat. So in five years, they will have gone from self-sufficiency to, to zero production and total dependence on imported grain. Now, that's Saudi Arabia. That's close to 3 million tons of wheat production capacity lost which is one half of 1% of the 600 million ton wheat crop. So it's not in itself a, a market shifting, uh, uh, on a market shifting scale, but it is 3 million tons of production capacity we no longer have. The first geographic region in which grain production has peaked and started to decline because of water shortages is the Arab Middle East. It includes Saudi Arabia, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, which is a hydrological basket case. Um, and, and so for the first time, we're seeing peak irrigation water and peak grain production. 
um, in, in a region of the world, in, in a geographic region. The World Bank estimates that 15% of India's population is fed with grain produced by overpumping. That's 175 million people. We estimate at the Earth Policy Institute that 130 million Chinese are being fed by overpumping. Overpumping is, by definition, a short term phenomenon. So, what we have done is, in effect, create water based food bubble, food bubbles, food, a food bubble economy that's artificially inflated in the short run by overpumping. I mentioned the Saudis going from self-sufficiency to, to zero in, in, in five years. Um, that, that's particularly dramatic. That will not happen in India or China. But the loss of irrigation water from aquifer depletion in India, where it's mostly sustainable aquifers as opposed to fossil aquifers, um, means that when the aquifer is depleted, the rate of pumping is necessarily reduced to the rate of recharge. So there will be a reduction. Exactly how much and how fast it'll come, whether it will be enough to overset efforts to expand the grain harvest, remain to be seen. China, um, in a similar situation. Um, we don't know exactly uh, when, um, the, when the irrigation capacity will peak in these countries, but it at some point will. So, in addition to climate change, the other major factor uh, affecting the food prospect in the short run, I think, will be, will be water shortages. I could talk about the U.S. The difference between the U.S. and India and China is that three-fifths of the grain in India is produced on irrigated land, four-fifths in China. It's only one-fifth in the U.S. So we, we will be affected, but not on nearly the same scale. <clears throat> then we have soil erosion. Overplowing, overgrazing, huge dust bowls, two huge dust bowls forming in the world. One in northwestern China, western Mongolia, and a bit of Central Asia, the other in, in Central Africa. And we can now track these with satellite images each year. And, and each of these huge dust storms carries millions of tons of topsoil away. Um, so we're we're seeing some countries now where production has peaked and begun to decline because of soil erosion, land degradation. Countries like Lesotho, Mongolia, North Korea, and Haiti, uh, both wrestling with the soil erosion problem, and not any longer able to keep production increasing. <clears throat> then we have <clears throat> a longer-term threat in addition to water and climate. I, sh I should point out that crop ecologists have a rule of thumb that for each one degree Celsius rise in temperature above the optimum during the growing season, we can expect a 10% decline in grain yields, wheat, rice, corn. I, I remember seeing a, a study in the Philippines on, on rice and, and the relationship of yield to temperature. At, at about, and the heat affects pollination with, with grains. Um, the, at 95 degrees Fahrenheit, you have basically 100% pollination. At 104 degrees 
Fahrenheit, you have essentially zero pollination and a total crop failure. So a few degrees can make a big difference in that, uh, <clears throat> in that span. Ice melting. The Greenland ice sheet is melting. It is melting at an accelerating rate. If it were to melt entirely, and that won't happen overnight, but if it were to melt entirely, sea level would rise 23 feet. Even a one meter rise in sea level would put half the rice land in Bangladesh underwater. It would inundate a large part of the Mekong Delta, which produces half the rice in Vietnam. Vietnam being the world's number two rice exporter. And there are another 19 rice-growing river deltas in Asia that would be affected by a three-foot rise in sea level. We don't have to wait for Greenland to melt entirely before we begin to see this. During the last century, sea level rose about six inches. It's now projected to rise way up to six feet during this century. It's the complexity of issues we're facing that makes it much more difficult now. I mean, who would have imagined that ice melting on a, an island in the far north Atlantic could shrink the rice harvest of Asia, a region where half the world's people live? It's not intuitively obvious until you begin thinking about the, the relationship among the various parts of the natural system. Melting mountain glaciers, another major source of food insecurity. We're already beginning to see this in the Andes. Some glaciers like the, is it the Chaltacaya in Bolivia are gone completely. Um, and, and, the, and the river flows. I was at the World Bank last week, and uh, they're concerned with the, 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 um, the ice melt and the flow of rivers in the Andes, in countries like Peru, for example, and how they're being affected. So ice melting has two effects. It raises sea level, and it melts glaciers in the mountains, whose ice melt sustains, in Asia, for example, the major rivers helps sustain the major rivers during the dry season. The Indus, the Ganges, the Yangtze, the Yellow. And again, I don't think we've quite grasped what all this is translating into. If I were to pick three indicators to monitor to get a sense of our future, one would be an economic indicator, grain prices. The second would be a social indicator, the number of hungry people in the world. That was declining during the closing decades of the last century. It's now rising. And the third would be a political indicator, the number of failing states in the world. That number is growing, and it raises a disturbing question, which is how many failing states before we have a failing global civilization. We don't know. We haven't been here before. 
But these are the sorts of questions I think we need to be asking. What do we do? Well, it's clear that business as usual is no longer a viable option. And what we've worked on at the Institute for the last several years is something we call Plan B. Plan A being business as usual. Plan B has four components. One, cutting carbon emissions 80%, not by 2050, but by 2020. This is really, in a sense, a wartime kind of mobilization to get this sort of cut. But it's the kind of reduction it may take if we want to save the Greenland ice sheet, for example. It doesn't guarantee it, but it, it, it at least would give us a much better shot at it. Second is stabilizing population sooner rather than later. We, th we would like to see world population follow the UN low projection and stabilize at about 8 billion instead of going to 9 or 10 or 11. And closely related to that is eradicating poverty. We see population stabilization and, and poverty eradication as being, being two mutually reinforcing trends. Eradicating poverty accelerates the shift to smaller families. The accelerating shift to smaller families makes it easier to eradicate poverty. So those two trends reinforce each other. And then the, the fourth component of Plan B is restoring the economy's natural support systems. Forests, soils, aquifers, grasslands, fisheries. No civilization has survived the ongoing destruction of its natural supports nor will ours. But we have not incorporated that into our public thinking. How do we do this in, in policy and in, in fiscal terms? Restructuring the world energy economy, we think, can be done primarily by restructuring the tax system, getting the market to tell the truth. Reduce income taxes, raise the carbon tax and do this over a 10-year period. So we don't pay any more taxes. We tax labor less and carbon more. That would accelerate the shift from coal and oil and natural gas to wind and solar and geothermal energy. <clears throat> and then the eradication of poverty. We need universal primary school education, for example, girls as well as boys. We need rudimentary health care at the village level, school lunch programs in the, in the poorest of the poor countries. We need to fill the family planning gap. There are 207 million women in the world who want to plan their families but don't have access to family planning services and reproductive health care. It doesn't take very much to fill that gap. It's so small it gets lost in the rounding in larger international expenditures. But it is, I think, central to, to providing and building a sustainable future. Then we look at soil conservation, reforestation, raising water productivity. And this is, is largely a pricing issue. The, the major uses of water today, I mean, 70% is for irrigation worldwide.
but a lot of that irrigation water is, is free or essentially free. So farmers treat it as an abundant resource when in fact it's a valuable resource. And when we worry about water, we sometimes talk about drinking water, but we drink maybe four liters of water a day. But we eat 2,000 liters of water a day. That is, the food that we eat requires five times as much water to produce as the four liters we drink as water or juice or coffee or whatever. We need a worldwide effort to raise water productivity, similar to the one we launched in the 1950s to raise cropland productivity, specifically grainland productivity. The world grain yield per acre in 2010 is nearly triple the world grain yield per acre in 1950. We need to think about water and make the same kind of international effort to raise water productivity that we did to raise grain yields. When we look at the costs of these things, it turns out that eradicating poverty, reforestation, soil conservation, all these things we need to do. Restructuring the energy economy will do with tax restructuring, but the rest will take about $200 billion of additional expenditures each year worldwide. Now, $200 billion is, is a lot, especially today. It's nearly one-third of the U.S. military budget. It's, it's one-eighth of the global military budget. But we're now in a situation where we have to redefine security. We have inherited our definition of security and defined it almost exclusively in military terms. We inherited it from the last century, which was dominated by two world wars and the Cold War. But the big threats to our future today are not some heavily armed superpower waiting to in invade us. It's climate change. It's population growth. It's soil erosion. It's aquifer depletion. It's rising food prices. These are the real threats to our future now. And we need not only to redefine security, but redefine our fiscal outlay to reflect this. Let me talk for a few minutes, come back to the energy situation and cutting carbon emissions. If you like to save energy, this is a great time to be alive because we have extraordinary technologies. I mean, going from incandescence to compact fluorescence cuts electricity use by roughly 75%. If we then go to LEDs, along with, light, with motion sensors to turn lights off when no one's in a room, we can cut electricity use for lighting by 90%. That will enable us to close over 700 of the world's 2,600 coal-fired power plants. And we'd make money in the process. It's interesting that the head of Philips in North America is projecting that by 2015, half of all the bulbs sold in North America and in Europe 
will be LEDs, and by 2020, it will be 80%. So I think we've, we've got the, a potential here that's going to develop fast. The other thing is to electrify the transport system. Run our cars on electricity, whether it's plug-in hybrids or all electric cars, light rail in cities, high-speed intercity rail, uh, now a major uh, possibility. And we need to develop renewables fast. And we're seeing some extraordinarily exciting things. The US state of Texas, the oil state for the US, now has over 10,000 megawatts of wind generating capacity. It has another maybe 40 on the, in the planning stages on the drawing boards, and they're building some major transmission lines to enable them to exploit that. Texas could be self-sufficient in electricity generation um, if, it, if it develops all the wind farms it's now planning to do. And interesting, a lot of the money going into the wind farms is oil money. And the exciting thing about investing in wind farms and wind infrastructure is that for the first time since the Industrial Revolution began, we have the opportunity to invest in, in energy sources that will essentially last as long as the Earth itself. We've not had this for a long time, but what a legacy to leave the next generation. Investment in wind and solar and geothermal energy sources that don't run out. When you invest in a new coal field, I mean a new oil field, you know that it's only a matter of decades till the well yields start to drop and eventually you have to find another oil field. Same with coal mines, eventually the coal seams are gone, you have to find another. But with wind, that's not the case. With solar, that's not the case. We see in China the effort to build 130,000 megawatts of wind generating capacity in seven wind mega complexes in six different provinces. 130,000 megawatts of wind is, is equal to building another coal-fired power plant every week for the next two and a half years. This is big time thinking. China's now overtaking the US in annual wind installations. And this 130,000 megawatts is, is only part of what they're doing. They have a lot of other smaller wind farms being developed all the time. Or the Desert Tech proposal in, in Europe in July, when governments were preparing for Copenhagen, this is July a year ago. Munich Re, Munich Reinsur Reinsurance, Deutsche Bank, Siemens, um, a group of a dozen or so companies and investors got together and, 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 and laid out a plan for harnessing the solar resources of North Africa both to provide electricity in North Africa, but also to uh, provide electricity for Europe and to integrate the wind resources of, the, of Northern Europe and the North Sea with the solar resources of, of North Africa into a single grid. Big time thinking. In the US, one of the most exciting things in the last few years while everyone was worried about Copenhagen and what would happen or not happen there, there evolved in the United States a, a powerful grassroots movement opposing the construction of new coal-fired power plants. As a result of that effort, we may never license another 
coal plant in the United States. And they have now moved into phase two of this program, which is to close the existing coal-fired power plants. Last year, utilities announced that they were planning to close 48 coal-fired power plants, and there are more already this year. Coal use in the U.S. has declined by 8% over the last three years. During that same period, we've built almost 300 new wind farms, brought them online with a generating capacity of maybe 28,000 megawatts. So things are changing. They're not changing fast enough yet, but they're, they are changing. <clears throat> Can we do it? I mentioned the need to redefine security. I think that's at the heart of this restructuring that we need. Um, but when I am sort of overwhelmed by the, the scale of what we need to do and the urgency with which we have to do it, I, I go back and look at the economic history, read some of the economic history of World War II. December 7, 1941, the extraordinarily successful Japanese attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet, part of which was at anchor in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. From a military point, it was extraordinarily successful. But what it did was to lead to a mobilization in the United States because Americans didn't want to, didn't want to be involved in the war. If you'd done a poll on December 6th, 95% would have said, no, we don't want to get involved in the war. If you waited to December 8th, you would have gotten 95% saying, yes, we have to go to war. And I think it was January 6th, 1942, a month after Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt laid out U.S. arms production goals. He said, we're going to produce 45,000 45, tanks, 60,000 planes, at least a few thousand ships. And people couldn't relate to those numbers. They were so far beyond anything anyone had talked about or even um, certainly not proposed anywhere else. But what Roosevelt and his colleagues knew was that at that time, the greatest concentration of industrial power in the world was in the U.S. automobile industry, because even during the Depression, we were making two or three million cars a year. So we called them the leaders of the industry and said, we're going to rely heavily on you guys to help us reach these arms production goals. And they said, well, Mr. President, we're going to do everything we can, but it's going to be a stretch producing cars and all these arms, too. He said, you don't understand. We're going to ban the sale of automobiles in the United States. So the entire automobile industry had to start producing tanks and planes and all these things. And in the end, we produced not 60,000 planes, but 229,000 planes. I mean, even, even today, it's difficult to imagine that. I was on book tour recently flying into... Uh, uh, Seattle, in, in Washington, where Boeing has its large facilities. And I was thinking, 229,000 planes? I, but we did it. And we can do the same thing today with wind turbines, for example. We would need about 2 million wind turbines, 2 megawatts each, to, to close all the world's coal-fired power plants. Um, that's a lot, but we produce 
65 million new cars every year. We're talking about 2 million wind turbines over the next decade. Entirely doable if we decide we want to do it. And my closing point would be that we environmentalists have been talking for decades about saving the planet. But as I think about it, the planet's going to be around for some time to come. The challenge for us is saving civilization itself, because I do not think civilization can withstand the stresses if we continue with business as usual much longer. Environmental stresses will translate into economic stresses that will become political instability. And saving civilization is not a spectator sport. We all have a stake in it. We all have to get involved. I'm often asked the question as I travel around the world, you know, what can I do? And I think people expect me to say, change your light bulbs and recycle your newspapers and so forth. And those are important. But we're at the point now where we have to change the system. We have to restructure the world energy economy. And we have to do it quickly. And we've got to restore the natural support systems on which the economy depends. We can't continue destroying grasslands or overfishing and, and, and experiencing a collapse in, in, in one fishery after another. We can't continue overpumping aquifers. We've got to change, big time change. And we don't have much time in which to do it. And it's against that backdrop that I thank you, Nicholas, for the invitation. Ian Curtis, wherever you are, for, for uh, working on, uh, on this. Um, I'm just delighted to be here tonight, and if, there's, uh, if there are any questions, I'd be happy to uh, respond to them.